Hello and welcome to Bread Theory. Um, so tonight, I think we're going to do something a little bit different than we, we normally have. Usually we've been sticking to strictly leftist theory and, you know, even on Sunday nights, tend to tend to hang out in that realm as well, even if it's uh, making fun of people and, and criticizing <laughs> videos of people on the right. Uh, so yeah, so so we've been covering things like the conquest of bread and the communist manifesto and a lot of left tube streamers as well as criticizing uh, Right you know, if, if there even is such a thing as right tube streamers um, or uh, YouTubers um, from a leftist position uh, but as, as part of the the overall theory that I, I'd like to get out there I want to start folding in some other ideas that, that aren't specifically left or right, but I think could really help um, any sort of leftist uh, political philosophy. And, and one of those is permaculture. So tonight, and I hope it updated right, I tried to update it to uh, Permaculture 101, but that's what we're going to be covering. So I have a, a playlist for you of uh, a bunch of permaculture videos. We're not going to get through all of it tonight, but it'll give you a good start. Uh, you'll be able to walk away from this uh, actually being able to say that you have a good idea of what permaculture is and, and how it could possibly be applicable to your daily life, um, as well as any political movement that you find yourself a part of. Um, so rather than spend too much time defining it myself, I, I think rather we will take a look at the videos themselves um, and just and just have some of the experts in the field kind of uh, take it away with with what their take on permaculture is and and as we usually do with the the theory nights i'll I'll interject from time to time to kind of give you some context or explain some difficult concepts. Um, it's one of those things that that once you've been in in the theory for a while, like um you you know most of the ins and outs of it you you know most of the luminaries and stuff like that. It, it becomes harder to remember what other people don't know who are just coming in, um, if that makes any sense. Uh, your, your theory of mind of, of the people that are new to this stuff uh, kind of diminishes as, as you get so immersed in it, basically. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, so I will, I will try to keep that in mind, though. And, and if any of you in the, the audience have any uh, questions about it, Actually, let's back up one second here. Uh, if you have any questions about anything that we're covering, please shout them out. There's no, there's no dumb questions unless you're just being a troll. Uh, but any, any sort of good faith question is a good question. I'm going to go ahead and uh, put the URL for the playlist into the chat right now. And I'll set it up so you can see him too. So this is a guy that I, I've known for a number of years. Um, his name is Matthew Stevens. He's a, a permaculture designer, mostly a permaculture teacher. Uh, he, he's constantly doing what, what's known as permaculture design, uh, permaculture design certificate or certificate courses. I shouldn't say certification. It's it's a weird semantic thing, but they don't want you to call yourself a certified permaculturalist or anything like that. Um, and it looks like my chat's not working on there, so hopefully it's working. We'll go ahead and scroll down. Got the wrong chat up here from. Yeah, don't show that again. I'm gonna bring my chat up again before we start because it's it's wigging out. 
So let's bring that back. There's the chat. Hopefully it's syncing up with the stream. Okay, here we go. All right. So yeah, so any questions you have, anything that doesn't make sense, um, I'm going to try my best to tie it back to the, the sorts of leftist things that we've been talking about and just leftism in general. Um, but if, if you're not making the connection, just let me know and, and I'll do my best to, to correct it. So let, let's hear Matthew Stevens. He's going to do a really quick two minute, like two minute and 14 second introduction to what permaculture is. So let's, let's take a listen. Hi, my name is Matthew Stevens. Bump up the Today volume I'm gonna, a little bit. Uh, Hopefully that's good. Give you guys an introduction to permaculture uh, in 60 seconds or uh, two minutes. Yeah, two um, minutes. I'm going to do it as quickly as possible because oftentimes when you need to explain permaculture to people, you need to do it very, very quickly because after a while, uh, their eyes glaze over I can and attest to that. they become disinterested because it's a very complex subject, therefore it's very difficult to explain quickly. So one of the ways when I teach, um, I teach basically from Bill Mollison's Permaculture, a designer's manual, at least that's the, the basic curriculum for all the classes that I teach on permaculture. And, that, and that's one of the most, if not the most uh, important texts in permaculture, Permaculture, a designer's manual. We talked about it on the last stream. I'll bring it up once more uh, where you can get it. There's a, there's a free downloadable PDF of it. Um, I'm going to go ahead and put that up in the stream as well, again, so that you can check it out for yourself. Uh, let's see. So let's go ahead and put that into the chat. Do, do, paste, and done. So yeah, check out Permaculture Designer's Manual. It's, it's definitely worth your time. It's very, it's going to cover all the bases of permaculture, basically. Uh, everything you need to know. And, and though it focuses on mostly agricultural production, not just food, but, but also um, fuel, fiber, pharmacy, uh, these sorts of things as well. But, but still, production on, on a piece of land. You can, you can apply these principles, you can apply these, these design ideas to just about anything you're trying to design. My main reference point, and on page one, we um, basically, there's the prime directive. The prime directive, the only ethical uh, decision is to take responsibility for ourselves and that of our children. And then on page two, we so so in case you missed that, the prime directive, according to Bill Mollison, is the only ethical. You know, I don't I don't want to actually uh, butcher it at all. I want to get the right the right thing. So let me pull that up too. Uh, okay. Let's see if we got it. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. So that of the future generations, not, not, just, not just your specific children. That's how I interpret it, but, but all children, basically. Sustainability, in other words. At, at, a, at a bare minimum, sustainability, if not regeneration, growth, abundance, um, words that, that, that are more than just baseline continuing to be able to exist, but, but, but also flourish, you know, I think that's a, a good way of putting it. Um, so, so it also speaks to the urgency of, of the, the task at hand, um, because we're facing some, some great, 
catastrophes that are, are have already started. Uh, I looked at a, a a map recently. It showed the uh, drought levels in in various parts of of the U.S. and uh, compared it to this time last year, and they are incredibly higher. We're in severe drought stage in a lot of of the western states. You know, like the Four Corners sorts of states, Colorado, New Mexico, uh, I think even into Texas, uh, Utah, you know, those sorts of areas, as, as well as out to, to California. There are patches where we're already in severe drought status. And it, it's hard to ignore that these fire seasons have been getting worse and worse uh, due to changes in weather patterns. And where do changes in weather, weather patterns come from? Change in climate, because the climate is... In essence, uh, the the average weather over time for a given period of the year. When those things start to fluctuate to the point where we're not having the, the average from the past, we're, we're talking about climate change. It doesn't only mean th- that things are always warmer. Uh, it, it, it's a lot more nuanced and dynamic than that. Um, so that's a big threat that we're facing. And I think really the only the only uh, design framework that's that's actually going to pull us out of it is permaculture and potentially some other ones that, that are, are related systems. Uh, we're not going to get into it tonight, but just, just for your reference, there are systems such as uh, key line plowing, um, which, which uh, I, I'm not incredibly familiar with, but that's another discipline you can look into, key line plowing. Um, what is a uh, bio, what, it, oh man, why am I not thinking of it? Biodynamic, it's uh, uh, a way of, of doing things that some people consider to be kind of woo. I mean, they, they, they talk about like uh, harvesting certain things according to moon cycles or uh, when it really gets into the, the more woo stuff was, is in their different preparations. Like they'll take a cow skull, fill it with manure and add some other stuff to it put it in a vat of water and there's a there's an elaborate ritual of stirring it around and all these sorts of things and whether or not you think it's it's you know kind of new agey sort of thing it they do seem to have good results with whatever it is that they're doing so they're doing something right and that's the important part so there's biodynamic there's key line um there's agrarian agriculture which is is trying to regenerate um agricultural land um a bunch of different things that are related to permaculture but not necessarily part of the permaculture um, framework. They don't necessarily use permaculture principles and ethics to to design their systems. But yeah, these, in my opinion, these are the only things that are going to pull us out of this this tailspin when it comes to things like climate change, and and the the war and uh, dislocation of people that will that already is coming from it. Uh, you have people in in the, some of the Pacific Islands that. They're, they're working on relocating their entire population because the islands are already starting to go under the water um, because of sea level rise. So they're looking for place, permanent homes in places like Australia, New Zealand, uh, because they don't have many options left. They're, they're facing annihilation, essentially, if they don't move. Um, climate change is happening now. It's, it's not just a, a, a far-off thing. It's not something that... You know, there's always that that ten year time frame to change to turn things around that they talk about. Well, I mean, it is already happening. So, uh, let's see. 
Do I support BLM? Well, I mean, that's not exactly what we're talking about right now, but that's okay. I do support BLM. How about you, uh, squatting squat? Maybe you're on a mobile phone, so there's a delay, but we're going to continue on. This is a, we're just doing the introduction to permaculture right now. So uh, go ahead and, and finish uh, Matthew Stevens' definitions. We have the principle of cooperation. Cooperation, not competition, is a very basic might be kind of survival for existing Kind of quiet. Systems. I'm going to bump up the audio just a little more. I, I have a feeling it's... Page two, which is that the earth acts as a thought process. And then we have the three ethics of permaculture, which is earth care, people care, and uh, setting limits to population and consumption, or return of surplus, or fair share. So, these so once again, those three ethics are... Um, okay, so that, that's a really... The, the three ethics of permaculture are earth care, uh, people care, and it's been... The third one's been uh, interpreted in many ways. Uh, but it but it can come to things like fair share or just the the longer form of returning the surplus to the service of the first two So there you have it These sorts of ethics in my mind fit very nicely into any sort of leftist theory uh, I mean in order to have a leftist movement you have to have an intact ecosystem of, of some function in order to support us so that there, there goes earth care um, and also, especially if we're getting into things like, like eco-anarchism or green anarchism, uh, we, are, we are trying to bring more and more of, of the, the kingdoms of life into that sphere of egalitarianism and, and things that are deserving of rights and uh, consideration. So I think earth care works very well with that. And then you have people care. People care is, is, is what leftism is all about, um, any sort of leftist theory. Pretty much, you're going you're gonna to... Be, you're going to be hard-pressed to, to find a leftist who, who doesn't care about people. Like, what's the point? Just go be a libertarian or something. Uh, and I mean a right libertarian, not, not libertarian as most of the world defines it. Um, so, so there's people care. And then you have fair share or return the surplus to the service of the first two. That, that fits in perfectly with things like mutual aid, um, with things like uh, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. That's, that's, that's returning of the surplus. Uh, I, I find it hard to interpret that in really any selfish way that, and that the, the right could possibly frame it. Uh, the, the only exception might be if you twist it so much that you, you, you do the thing where you add for my people only to the end of any sentence. But I don't think that's at all what was implied here. It's, it's not for a particular group of people. It's for all people. Um, it's returning to all people, not not just certain people, not just the worthy people, but but all people. So I think these these ethics for permaculture fit really well into any sort of uh, leftist framework. Uh, let's continue on here. We're almost done. These are the on page one and two. These are the most important aspects of permaculture to really, I think, understand from a historical standpoint. Permaculture as a as a design system, and these are based on Mollison's um, concept of permaculture. Mollison is the father of permaculture. Uh, the Designer's Manual was published in 1988. Uh, it is called The Bible, and um, it is the most important permaculture book ever written. And I, and I wouldn't say that he's necessarily wrong about that, that 
it's it's definitely in the top like it's to the 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 level that it's hard to really you know put one above another because it's going to be situational uh let's see there was a there's another book though that i wanted to show you Here's another very important book in the permaculture group of, of, of philosophy and, and literature. It is uh, Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability. This is by David Holmgren. He was one of the co-originators. He worked with Bill Mollison, who Matthew was just talking about, uh, to create the permaculture framework. Um, so this, this one, he took the, the stuff from Permaculture Designer's Manual and tried to distill it down to... 12 principles, which is still a lot to keep in your mind. It's funny, like I, I use these, these principles all the time whenever I'm doing design work or just in my daily life, I, I relate things to these 12 principles. Um, and yet it's hard, it's hard even for me to keep all 12 in my head at, at the same time. Like if you were to ask me, what are the 12? Go, you know, list them out there. I'm sure I could get more than half done, but there's always going to be one or two that's just like, you know, in the back of your mind somewhere, not quite coming to the front. So... I mean, he, he did his best to, to, to distill it as much as he possibly could. But even still, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to take. And it, oh, that's not quite uh, framed well. That's okay. There's a little better shot of it. Permaculture, Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability. Great book. Highly recommend. So let's get back to the video. So that's a basic introduction. Um, and I'll have some more videos uh, every day. Oh, I, I wish he would put out more videos. It's been, it's been a while, but he's been a busy guy. This might be a good place to start. Thanks for watching. So there you have it. Uh, that's, a, that's a real basic intro into the, the ethics and principles and some of the key players, the founders, uh, as well as some of the key texts of the movement. So, so having that little tidbit of knowledge... Um, you know, under your belt now. We can move on to some of the history of, of how the permaculture movement started itself. So we have a, a short documentary. This is only an eight-minute video, but we're going to learn about um, how permaculture started. that the volume's a little high, so I'm going to bump that down again. I'll bring it down just a little more. So that's David Holmgren. Um, still alive and kicking. Uh, I'm David Holmgren. Oh boy, that's quite loud. I'm best boy. known as the co-originator of the permaculture concept. Let me just in the bump that down a bit. With Bill Mollison. Sometimes there's two stories that are told about how the idea of permaculture really came about. Down just a little bit more. One story is that Mollison was my supervising academic and I was just some technical assistant okay. to work That's with him. And then there's the opposite of that, which is I was the brilliant student and he was the academic who stole my work, which neither of those are true. I mean, for a start, he was my mentor while I was working on that permaculture. Make it so you can see the closed caption. 
but if it had been left to me, the permaculture manuscript would have just moulded away in a drawer. It was Bill who was like, no, we're going to take this to the world. David Holmgren, uh, the guy who was just talking there, one of the co-originators of the permaculture concept, is a really cool guy, and, and he's, he's taken those theories um, to, you know, leftist places, really. He's, he's, he's talked about things like mutual aid and um, a lot of different anarchist principles in, in relation to uh, preparing ourselves for... Uh, any sort of shocks that can come through climate change and, and that sort of thing. Um, so he's a, he's a cool guy to check out, David Holmgren. The core of the idea of permaculture really came about when I was coming towards the end of my first year in environmental oh, design. And my interests were gravitating around ecology, agriculture, and landscape design. And I could see how two of these connected, but I couldn't see anywhere where the three crossed over and intersected. So I wanted to look at that. At a sim So he was looking for uh, combining three different disciplines, seeing where they overlap, just kind of like I am. Uh, I, like, I like to combine uh, anarcho-communism or just any sort of flavor of anarchy with, uh, except for ANCAP, which is not a real one. But uh, anyway, anarchism with permaculture, as well as new urbanism, which is a subset of urban planning theory. So, yeah. Seminar about how land is owned and controlled. There was a bloke there who said some really interesting things. He pointed out that the rabbit problem in Australia could have been solved by rabbit trappers, but they had no incentive to do so because they didn't benefit from the land being in better condition from there being less rabbits. So what did they do? They farmed the rabbit. So for those of you who might not be aware, I'm only mildly aware with, uh, or mildly informed about the situation, but rabbits were introduced to Australia and they wreaked havoc because they had virtually no natural predators. Um, they reproduced very quickly and, and they found that they were suited very well to the the climates there. And so they, they um, ravaged all sorts of ecosystems. Um, they, were, they were very invasive. So they, they, were, they were having a big problem with that in Australia. That's on the farmer's land. So he was pointing out that the ownership of the land had this really adverse effect on the sustainability of the land. Mm, was, we're kind of brushing up against some leftist ideas of how uh, having having ownership over the means of production changes how you view and treat that means of production. You, you, you know, whereas if you're just a worker, you, you may not really care about uh, what happens to the boss's land. It's it's not really your business. And besides, they're they're taking 
uh, most of your effort for themselves, you know, most of the product of their, your effort for themselves. So you, you just may not care one way or another. Once you own that land and you have to think about how it's going to be managed in the future, um, assuming you're not just sitting on it to, to flip it as soon as you can, that really starts to change the equation about how that land is, is going to end up being managed. You're going to want it to be managed well so that, that things uh, are sustainable for the future, basically. Um, so just imagine more people owning chunks of land for production. Uh, manage, uh, imagine more people in the city owning uh, their own homes and having a space that, that they can manage as well. Because um, you can do you can do permaculture in, in uh, small spaces. Like I mean, look behind me. I got oh, we must be coming up on 120, 130 plants in 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 this you know 15 foot section of living room that we have here, as well as a few more in the bedroom, uh, a few more in the kitchen. Um, and yeah, not all of them are, are are useful for for permaculture purposes. A lot of them are just ornamental. But we have a banana tree. Uh, let me let me take a look at myself again here. So you, see if you can even see it. Um, let me just turn the camera a bit to give you a better look. Okay, so we have a banana tree, and over here we have a passion fruit vine that I planted from seed, just from a, a passion fruit that I got from the grocery store. Uh, took the seeds out of out of you know one of the the two fruits that I bought, put them in a in, in a pot of dirt, and and now. In about three or four months, I want to say, maybe it's getting to, to five months at this point, it has grown from from seed to it's it's pushing up against the ceiling. It's it's gonna be hard to show that on the camera, but you can kind of see a little bit. It's it's trying to get out. Um, it's gone it's grown that big. And passion fruit, you know, it, it takes 18 months to start producing fruit, so um, we, we may or may not be in this apartment at that time. We'll have to figure out what to do with it then. But but still, it, it just shows how much is possible with such a small space. Um, in that banana tree that I had showed you uh, just a second ago, uh, right down here, we have mint growing in that. That's been growing for quite a few months. Um, and I've had, I've had other food plants, although we've had a, a problem with uh, white flies and other pests. And they seem to really like the agricultural crops. So I've had to pull back on my herbs and, and my tomatoes and stuff like that, which has made me sad, but it's better than trying to fight them every day. Um, so and, until that problem kind of takes care of itself, um, gonna have to gonna have to pull back on that. But anyway, uh, that just goes to, to, to show that, you know, you don't need huge plots of land to, to start growing things yourself and to start learning to care for plants. And learn to care for them in a different way, not just using the miracle grow and, and the sprays every time that they're infested. Um, it'd be really great if we could, in this space, try and, and mimic even more a uh, an actual natural ecosystem. That's that's part of the big idea behind permaculture, is to create these these functioning ecosystems, so that things set themselves in balance just through their their constituent plants and animals and their interactions. So if you think about it, if you think about, say, a cornfield, now to, to, to most bugs uh, who don't feed on corn at all, that's going to look like a desert to them. There's going to be nothing there for them. 
they're not going to thrive. They, they may uh, find nearby plants like edges and, and, and habitat that's, that's not under cultivation to go live in, but they're not going to go live in a cornfield. That would be suicide. But for, for something like, oh, I, even, I don't even know the common pests of the corn anymore. There was one called the corn looper. That was one of them that I'm aware of. A cornfield looks like a complete all-you-can-eat buffet. And uh, not only that, but you will eat so much that, that there'll still be a whole lot left over for the next generation. And you'll just keep on producing, and your, your species will just keep on producing and producing generation after generation until the entire field is, is covered in, in your particular pest species. Um, there's nothing to stop it. There's nothing to slow it down. And because basically only things that feed on corn are, are likely to live in that area, uh, you're not necessarily going to have enough of the natural pest control and in even things like spiders or, or other broad-spectrum feeders that are going to keep that population in check. It's going to be very difficult for them to live there too. Permaculture turns that completely on its head and says, instead of having everything in production under one particular crop, let's have a patch of this here, a patch of that there, a, a fruit tree um, that we put a bunch of other species of plants that tend to get along with that particular fruit tree around uh, and underneath. And let's fill different niches within uh these these newly created microclimates um, because it just just planting a tree can change the, the the very local or the microclimate it provides shade so that that's going you're going to have underneath its canopy it's going to be um you know 10 to 20 to to more degrees cooler fahrenheit um than if it's just in the blazing sun you're going to have evapotranspiration that's that's the tree basically sweating you know, it's, it's, it's water coming out of its, its uh, leaves. That's going to create different humidity. You're, you're starting to change the climate just by planting one tree. So then once you've started to, to, to change the microclimate, you can start plugging in things that, that like that particular microclimate. Maybe there's a bush that, that, that likes to have shade in, in the late afternoon. It doesn't like the hot, dry, uh, westerly sun. Uh, so you put that on, on the eastern side of the tree and, you know, the two work basically in symbiosis, although they may not even be aware of each other. They function symbiotically to help one another out. Um, so, so these are the sorts of things that, that permaculturists think about. Uh, yeah, I, I think I've gone kind of far afield, but, um, just, just to get an idea of, of how permaculture is different from traditional agriculture. I thought, God, this guy thinks just completely different to the academic ecologists I've met. And that was Bill Mollison. I got chatting with him afterwards, and I said, well, I'm interested in this intersection between ecology, agriculture, and landscape design and how natural systems could influence that. And he said, oh, how about this for an idea then? If most places on the planet, nature creates a forest, why doesn't our agriculture, if not look like a forest, function something like a forest? And there's a good question to start asking yourself as, as you're developing ideas about permaculture. 
you know, we, th- we think of agriculture as something that takes a lot of inputs. You, you see the, the sprinklers, you know, like the, the crop circles, you know, they have the, the, the sprinkler on the, the rotating arm out in, a, in, say, a cornfield or a soy field that, that's just pumping water out into the air in the middle of the, the hot middle of the day where, you know, half of it's evaporated before it's hit the ground. It's beside the point, but really, you, you have all these inputs coming in here. You have fertilizer coming in all the time. You have uh, different um, nutrients being in, injected. You know, f- you're adding phosphorus, you're adding nitrogen, you're adding potassium, all, the, all these sorts of things that, that plants need to, to grow. One of the reasons being because you're stripping out so much by farming in that way um, that y- you have to keep replenishing it. But if you look at a natural ecosystem, no one's watering it. No one, no one goes and waters the forest. Um, no one goes and rakes the forest, d- d- despite what former presidents have thought. These things tend to manage themselves. You know, if, le- if left to their own devices, they, they tend to do pretty well. They tend to add diversity. They tend to uh, adapt well to whatever climate they are, because, because those are the seeds that are going to, to germinate and survive and do well and thrive. Um, so what if we could model agriculture on that sort of principle? What if we could think about doing less rather than doing more, having less of an impact, less, less inputs into the land? And that's what permaculture talks about. It it talks about, uh, well, one of the principles, let's bring up one of the principles is, is use small and slow solutions. Um, Part of what that means is instead of setting up like your entire, you know, say you have 100 acres all of a sudden, instead of setting up uh, that entire 100 acres with, with oh my God, stop. Um, instead of setting up your entire acreage with, with all these different things you want to grow all at once, you start with a small patch and, and you get that right and then you grow from there. You see what you see what works. That's another principle. Observe and interact. So instead of trying to do all things all at once, we're we're, we're slowly projecting our influence out into the land. Um, and also, we get to see then what survives. What is what is actually most suited. We can we can have all these ideas of what's what we like to have growing. What we like to do for production. Um, but this, this is the, the, the true test is, is doing things small and slow, um, so that you don't get too far ahead of yourself and, and risk a, a catastrophic failure where you're set back entirely because everything you do has been wrong from the start and, and you just didn't know it yet. And so it, it all fails. So we're trying to avoid that sort of thing. Um, yeah, let's, uh, yeah, let's continue on though. Why is our agriculture all composed of only annual plants that grow and die in one year? Another good question. Um, you may not even know the difference between annual and perennial plants. There's also a third one called biennial, but that it's, it's not necessarily, it's not really necessary to know that one in particular. But basically annual crops They'll do a lot of production all in one year. Um, most of the, the crops that you see at the grocery store, uh, tomatoes, wheat, uh, corn, 
soy, um, uh, those sorts of things are uh, annuals. So they'll, do a, they'll, they'll build a lot of mass, they'll put on a lot of vegetative tissue or a lot of fruit, depending on what, what the crop is, all in one season, and then they die. And, and they, don't, they don't come back the next year on their own. You have, to, you have to plant new seed year after year after year, which requires a lot of equipment. It requires a lot of preparation and a lot of tending to. You, you tend to have to, to do things like uh, disc the soil. You ever seen those, those things they pull behind tractors that have slanted discs on them? That that's, serves the same function as like a, a handheld hoe where you're undercutting the root of potential weeds. You're also bringing nutrients up to the surface. Um, at the same time, you're exposing the soil to uh, degradation through, through wind um, and through compaction through the rain um, and just things desiccating, you know, drying out and, and kind of blowing away rather than composting as they might otherwise do. You also need more water then because things dry out faster. Um, but, but these annual plants that, that, that make up the bulk of our, our food supply, uh, they, 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 they are very good for, for planting in mass and then harvesting in mass. And then you plant the seed and then you harvest the the thing again, the crop again. Um, you don't have to worry about machinery, uh, destroying roots beneath the soil once, once the season's over and you're harvesting because, that plant is done either way. Whereas with a perennial, no, no, a perennial is, is a plant that comes back year after year. Pretty much all trees, I mean, at least all trees that I'm aware of, are perennials. Uh, lots of shrubs and bushes, um, but, but even smaller things as well, like um, kale is a perennial. It will come back year after year. Um, these things are harder to do mechanically because you have to worry about harming them year after year. Uh, you can't just put them out in, in a big field and, and have necessarily a, a machine that comes through and just harvest everything very quickly uh, and very mechanically. Um, and then if you start talking about what permaculturists do, having bunches of different um, crops, you know, hundreds of, of different crops on, on the same field, that becomes almost impossible to do mechanically. So that's, that's the big drawback of permaculture design is that it does not lend itself well to mechanical production. You can't, you, you have, not only do you have to have more knowledge because you have more crops that you're dealing with all at the same time, but you have to do a lot more hand cultivation of things. And that can be kind of daunting for people. Um, However, if you do things right, you can set it up. So, you know, we, we talked about having a patch of this, a patch of that. So let's, let's say one of your patch is, is squash. Let's say another patch is blueberries and, and, and a third patch is apples. We'll just, we'll just make it, we'll keep it simple. We won't worry about how easy or hard these crops are to manage right now. Um, if you had an entire field of any one of these crops, that's, that's almost certainly going to be more than any one person can handle by themselves. They're, you're going to need machines. You're probably going to need seasonal farm labor as well. However, if we time things right, the squash ripens at a different time than the blueberries. Blueberries are like, they tend to be um, 
early summer to mate uh, to late. Uh, there's even some ones that, that, that do start ripening in fall, but there, there's not going to be necessarily an overlap of blueberry ripeness and squash ripeness. Same thing's true of, of apples. Apples, they also tend to be more of a fall crop, um, but you can get different seasonal ones. So you could have it so blueberries ripen at this time of year, then the, the, the apples, then the squash finally at the end, or, or squash and then apples, depending on which varieties you get of each. Doesn't really matter. Now, just by doing that one thing, just by diversifying by, by three times, you need a lot less labor per each of those, Right? Because you don't need to harvest your entire field at once. All you need to do is harvest that one patch. Now you plug in a few more things. And, and little by little, you can build it up so that in a given season, as soon as the frost melts, you have, say, kale to harvest. That can be a very early crop because kale basically is, is an evergreen. It, it, it will stay green underneath the snow. No problem. I don't know how or why it does that, but it does. So you can start harvesting kale right away. Um, there's, there's other things you can, uh, do right away in the, in the springtime. Like even in February, you can start say tapping maple trees. Maybe that could be one of your crops and you could have it. So you have just these little things that you're doing week by week by week. And it's never more than one family or however many people live on that, that plot of land to handle. And yet you're using every part of that field. Now, not only do you not have to buy that, that machinery, which can be, over $100,000 for, for something like a, a, um, a, a combine or something like that. Um, so you're saving all that cost every year, and as, as well as the cost of maintenance. And, you know, many, many farming operations at, at, at this point don't even own their own machinery. It's so expensive. Or, or they're making payments on it constantly. They have to take out loans to get it, uh, stuff like that. So not only do you have, can you do away with that, but you're never overwhelmed. Because you're always, always something is always coming into harvest, or you're you're putting something into the ground, you know. In, in the case of like your annuals, or or just when you're expanding your perennial selection or whatever. So that's more the permaculture way of thinking. And there's another principle that that, that talks about that sort of thing, which is uh, integrate rather than segregate. So segregation of 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 uses would be having your entire field one crop. Integration means you take all these different crops and you weave them together in a way that, that they complement each other, uh, but also you can always manage them. There's, there's never a, 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 a lo locus of activity, we'll call it, on the farm that is, that is more than you can handle with just your two hands and a few hand tools, basically. That's, that's the goal with permaculture. And that's a hard sell for people that have been doing the, the mechanical cultivation for generations now. Um, it's a hard thing to think about. It seems very fantastical, you know, pie in the sky, very uh, optimistic. But it works, and people have done it. Um, people continue to do it time and time again on their own homesteads. Uh, so let's move on a little bit more. Whereas in nature, there's a diversity. And that's exactly in that intersection. By understanding how nature designs things, we can create permanent agriculture and permanent culture. And, and those are the two definitions of the word permaculture. 
it is it is both permanent agriculture and, and an agricultural system that functions more like a, a naturally occurring ecosystem we are not harvesting out all the stuff and then putting new stuff in you know things are, are continuing to come back year after year you're relying more on on perennial things um, as well as annuals that are easier to um, save the seed from and reproduce quickly um, but a, a permanent agriculture as well as a permanent culture because there, there is a culture that that surrounds itself with with this sort of cultivation that that is uh that these these people like david holmgren are wanting to build up um so you can see those, those are some pictures of his particular uh farmstead at his house where where things don't really look like you know you wouldn't think of a farm as, as having that many different things you know i mean i'm sure to people that are completely unused to permaculture that just looks overgrown uh, but it's managed it's all managed stuff and he's getting stuff from it continuously he's harvesting continuously and the beauty of permaculture again back to that small and slow solutions um, is that by putting in the work at the beginning most of the work at the beginning setting up things like uh, these communities of, of plants that do well together the further along you get and the more mature this this new ecosystem becomes the less work you have to do to manage it so whereas as regular agriculture the further you go the more you're mining the nutrients out of the soil the more the soil is 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 blowing away in the wind getting impacted in the rain all these sorts of things that are degrading it washing away in in into local waterways that's that's also a huge problem with agriculture um so the further you go in normal agriculture, the more inputs you need, the heavier machinery, the, 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 the more drastic measures you need to take to keep pulling uh, those annual crops out of the ground year after year. Especially since you're using the same few crops. Like, like crop rotation is more common now, but it's only going to be like, oh, this year I plant corn, this year I plant soy. And, and the soy adds a bit of nutrients back to the soil. Um, that's not enough. That's, that's, that's not the way a, a regular or a naturally occurring ecosystem works. They're going to be recycling the nutrients many more times before anything is, is leaving that system at all. Um, and they're going to be continuing to grow in abundance and fertility. That, that tends to be the way that um, natural ecosystems go. In everything we do. And that became permaculture. And as, as you notice, he still has things like corn. It's just not an entire field of corn. It's, it's a few stocks for his own personal use um, and for his family's use. So we're, we're not throwing away annuals. Like, you know, you don't have to think that you're going to have to get used to an entire new palette of foods um, just because you're doing permaculture. Um, you, you can still have some annuals. It's just you... you you look at them differently, and more likely than not, it's going to be for your own personal consumption because it's, it is so energy intensive that you're only going to be able to have, say, a small plot next to your house so that you can walk out to it every day and tend to it um, rather than, like I say, an entire field. Um, 
yeah, we're not throwing away any, any sorts of, of crops. We're not ruling them out um, unless they're completely unsuited to the environment and they, they take more work than they're worth. It comes from two Latin roots, permanence to persist through time, and culture, an activity that supports human existence. So put those together, it's a persistent system that supports human existence. Oh, and that was Bill Mollison, in case you missed that too. The, the originator, co-originator of the permaculture uh, movement, uh, concept. Um, recently passed away, I think it was uh, 2016, something like that. But uh, yeah, had, had quite a life. Um, brought a lot of new ideas into the world. So, Bill was my mentor. We were developing the first permaculture garden on the fringes of Hobart and persuaded me that we should publish it. But I didn't have a lot of the experience in all the different fields that underpin permaculture. And so my passion was about doing those things and building Meliodora here. Uh, Meliodora, that's, that's his personal homestead. Whereas Bill was ready for a larger stage and taking permaculture to the world was his next agenda to develop the beginning of the permaculture. Ah, and there you see, it's, it's kind of fuzzy. Maybe I can uh, get that in a little better resolution here. Oh yeah, it's only in 360. Let's, let's bump that up a little higher. There you go, now you can see it. So here we have the 12 principles. Um, let me move the mouse out of the way. Oh, shoot. You're not going to be able to see it all. Um, but we have observe and interact, catch and store energy, obtain a yield, self-regulation, apply self-regulation and accept feedback, uh, use and value renewable resources. You can't see it, but that, that worm symbol is produce no waste, uh, design from the patterns to the details, integrate, don't segregate. We talked about that a little bit. Uh, use small and slow solutions. We've talked about that. Use and value diversity, we've mentioned that as well. And use the edges and value the marginal. That's one of my favorites. We'll get into that more later on. And then finally at the top here, it's kind of organized like a clock. At the top we have creatively use and respond to change. So there you have it. And that's a very important one, that last one, when we're talking about things like climate change and uh, some of the disasters that it's already bringing and will continue to bring um, to the world and the pressures that will put on politics and people and so, so many things. Um, something like, ooh, I'm going to look it up. I'm going to look it up. Uh, something like 80% of the world lives within 100 miles of the coast. 40% of the world's population lives within 100, kilometer, 100 kilometers or kilometers of the coast. And that, that means the coast of let's say the ocean or the sea. Um, so think about places like New York City, already places like Miami, uh, because of the, their, their porous bedrock. Um, actually, when they get a storm surge in, the entire city floods every time. 
because it comes bubbling up through that that porous rock and they're they're really they're really not that far above sea level think about all the the major cities of the world and how many of them are right on the coast and how many people that includes we're talking about 40 percent potentially 40 percent of the world is going to have to relocate um we'll say even within 100 years that's that's out that's incredible that much uh migration is is going to fuel wars it's going to fuel wars not just over people moving but also over who controls the remaining resources um it's going to be all kinds of civil unrest so creatively use and respond to change is is absolutely critical to design course. And that mechanism was really how permaculture spread, not just in Australia, but around the world. And it, it's primarily been through the, the permaculture design uh, certificate course that, that these ideas have spread. Um, so basically the, the, the course, which we'll, we'll get into later on what that actually means, but it's just a, a rough sketch of it is you, you spend a minimum of 72 hours learning about these different concepts. Usually you're going to use the permaculture designer's manual, but, but other, other courses have used other um, books as, as their uh, you know, textbook, basically, um, just to give you a, a, a broad overview and then drill down into some of the details of permaculture and then you do a design project at the end um and there's also supposed to be a, a talent show component um you know that was just bill's personality in there. that's not that's not actually critical to uh understanding permaculture but it is fun and, it, and it's a way to to build those bonds with the people that you've spent 72 hours at minimum learning about this stuff with so so i can see why it's in there So although I was the co-originator of the permaculture concept, Bill was the father of the permaculture movement. Ah, uh, 2016. I was right about that. But look, he, I mean, he lived a good, a good long life, born in 1928. He'd be coming up on 100 now had he, he continued to hey live. Hey guys, thanks for watching the video. Hope you enjoyed uh -huh. it. That's just a small taste of what I've been shooting with David Holmgren. So, so that's about a third of the Let's give a shout out to this group here. Now shot and done. Uh, it's called and it's Dogs. To your Sorry, let me pause that a second. The, the, the group that, that is trying to put together this, this documentary, it looks like they've kind of petered out because this is in 2019, but man, that's fantastic stuff so far. Um, but anyway, it's called Dogs Go Woof, and that's all one word, productions. You can find them on... on um, on YouTube. And if you follow the link to the playlist, then you'll definitely see their stuff. Uh, yeah, he's, he's just going to plug the, the film for the rest of the, the minute or so there. So we'll move on to the next one here. Uh, and we're going to talk, we're going to learn from Alan Watts, um, a philosopher, uh, a thinker on uh, how we are nature. So I, I think this is relevant to the permaculture story. And any questions? Any questions you guys are having in the chat there, feel free to shout them out. Like, please don't feel intimidated. You know, I, I don't bite. I, I'm, I 
very much here to to help people learn in in whatever way works for them so don't feel like you you have a question but you're afraid to ask it shoot it out there even if you think we've covered it already this can be a lot to to take in all at once so really feel free to to say what's on your mind even if it's just a comment even if you don't have a a, a question um always happy to to hear what people are thinking about the the stuff that we're looking at The way an ecologist describes human behavior is as an action. What you do is what the whole universe is doing at the place you call here and now. You are something the whole universe is doing in the same way that a wave is something that the whole ocean is doing. Nature, human nature included, is an organism. And an organism is a system of orderly anarchy. There is no boss in it, but it gets along by being left alone and being allowed to do its stuff. We need a new kind of consciousness. Because if we don't experience ourselves that way, we mistreat our environment. We treat it as an enemy. We try to beat it into submission. And if we do that, comes disaster. Underneath the superficial self, there is another self, more really us than I. And if you become aware of that unknown self, the more you realize that it is inseparably connected with everything else that there is that our real body is not just what's inside the skin, but our whole total external environment. All right. Um, now that, that might come off as, as a bit woo to, to certain people, but I think it can be taken literally as well, that we are not just ourselves, uh, we are we are a part of our environment, and um, as I was just, as I was kind of developing the idea for what for what I want Solaris to be, which is this collection of, of um, permaculture, new urbanism, and um, anarchism. What I what I what I came across was the idea that there's no good way to talk about people as part of their environment. It's either people. Or the natural world, either um, an ecosystem or people. There's no good way to talk about it all at the same time, and yet we are all literally uh, connected to it. The things we eat, the things that make up our physical matter, they're all from our environment. We are we are a part of it, and the, and I think it's a very important reframing of of the way that we look at the world to realize that that. I mean, for, for one thing, it builds uh, empathy for the natural world because then what we do to the natural world, we are literally doing to ourselves. And for another, it, it, it roots us in our place, you know? We're not just people that are going through life, um, you know, from built environment to car to another built environment, um, 
we are we are part of of the world that we pass through we are part of the world that we we live in um and that's what i really want solaris to to help encapsulate is is that concept of us being part of the environment that we are co-creating with the natural world um so that sort of thing is 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 kind of impossible without ideas like permaculture uh, that, that really help physically tie us and, and, you know, emotionally tie us, psychically tie us, you know, in, in terms of what we're, we're thinking about um, to the landscape that we are a part of, that makes us up, that we are dependent on, that everything is interconnected, that that's at the heart of what Solaris is. It, it means of the sun. That's what the, the word literally means. Um, because all of this, all the energy in the, the world, um, I'm not talking about spiritual energy, I'm talking about physical energy, um, the, the oil, the wind power, um, our, our metabolism is all due to uh, either the sun that we, we see in the sky or stars that have long since died. That, that's what makes up the physical matter of our world and, and the energy of it. Um, so everything is interconnected. So I think Solaris of the sun is, is a good way to, to kind of encapsulate that, that interconnectedness of all of this stuff. And I think that's really what's at the heart of each of these three disciplines, whether it's, it's anarchism, which is about um, putting people on an equal playing field, helping people where they need it without any, any thought for, for compensation, just because they are a person, and that's all that it takes to be worthy of, of, of help. Um, whether we're talking about permaculture, where we're, we're talking about things like, you know, integrate rather than segregate and, and use renewable resources and um, observe and interact, all, all, these, all these things that, that help better root us and interconnect us with the land that we're dependent on. Or whether it's, it's uh, new urbanism, which, which is about good city design. That, that I'm at, at, the, at the bottom of every new urbanist concept, whether it's protected bike lanes or whether it's better mass transit, um, whether it's architecture that really speaks to a place that, that, that sets it apart from every other place in the world. All these sorts of concepts in new urbanism are about interconnectedness as well. So I think that's what's at the heart of each of these three philosophies, and that's how I want to kind of weave them all together, is, is with that, that starting point of interconnectedness. Um, so I think, uh, tying it back to Alan Watts, um, saying we are nature, it's a, it's a good first step towards really believing that, not just, just as, a, as a, a metaphor or anything, but like really, we are part of nature. Um, it's easy to forget that people are animals, that, that, that we are, in fact, apes. Um, but we are, and, and that right there sets us on one of the branches of the, 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 the tree of life. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's just a little bit about uh, what I'm trying to do here. Um, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah we're, we're literally made of stars. Moby wasn't just making a, a nice turn of phrase when he said, we are all made of stars. That, that's literally true. We are, we are made of, of dead star stuff. Um, same thing with that. Uh, oh, I'm going to forget the, the name of the band, but that one from 
uh, that did that song. I think it was just called Woodstock. I think it was Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, if I'm not mistaken. Huh? What? You call me a nerd over there? Yeah. Oh, whatever. You're welcome. It's a good song. I'm not going to play it on stream because it's going to be TOS. Huh? Any, any, any more comments from the peanut gallery over there? Okay. Uh, and the, you know, we are, the, the song goes, you know, we are stardust, basically. Uh, that's one of the, one of the lyrics. And uh, you can interpret that in, in, a, in a spiritual way, but you can also interpret that in a very literal way. Um, because we literally are. So, yeah, I think I've said that enough times now. <laughs> Put that in your mind. Um, but just think about that as you go through your day, you know? Think about how the world affects you. The, the, the natural world that you are a part of affects you, how you affect it. Um, start rooting yourself in the place that you're in. Start to look at the unique things about the place that you live. There's, there's some out there, I guarantee. You could be in the smallest of towns, I'm sure there's something unique about it. Um, something that if you didn't visit for a long time, you might go, oh, yeah, if you came back finally one day. I remember that. That, you know, that reminds me of home. Or you might see, you know, a particular, it could even be something like a, a sign or an advertisement. You say, oh, that reminds me of the, the advertisement in my small town. That's something that roots you there. Start looking for those things in your life. Um, it'll start helping you think in, in these terms of being interconnected. All right, so that's the end of that video. We're going to move on to the next one, and I think... Uh, sustainable system ah. is any system that... In so we're going to get a little bit from, from uh, the mouth of, of Bill Mollison himself about uh, what is permaculture, basically. Here's, here's his own definition of it. In its lifetime, can produce more energy than it takes to establish and maintain it. And that's critical. And, and by more energy... It's, it's not magic. You're not creating energy out of nothing. It's, it's, it's taking in. You're still going to have input from both the sun and from the, the warmth of the earth radiating up. So when he says produces more energy, he means more energy that people have to use, whether that's renewable energy, uh, electricity, um, or whether that's fossil fuels, whether that's nuclear. Um, the systems that he's talking about produce more in calories, in, in usable wood for, for things like burning for fuel. Um, eventually, they, th that's the goal, is for them to produce more than they take in human inputs, basically. So we're not, we're not counting the sun because the law of entropy, energy eventually dissipates. That's just how it is. Sun shines in. We're not going to capture all of it in our plants, in our electronics. And, uh, yeah. Permaculture design is the first system of conscious functional design in the world. That's its unique aspect. And functional design is sustainable. Permaculture was a concept that Bill Molson and I worked on in the 70s. Today we call sustainability. It was based on a simple question related to the design of agriculture. If most of nature is dominated by perennial plants, trees and other long-lived plants, 
Why is our agriculture dominated by annual crops? Why doesn't it follow the design rules of nature? We've got used to the idea that for any sort of key problem or important activity, there's one big solution that trumps all others and some version of it ends up everywhere. Once you start dealing with nature and local resources, local situation, then the design solutions are all different. And this is a critical part of permaculture. It tries very much not to be just dogmatic and prescriptive about what needs to be done. It, it, it tries to instead be situationally applicable. So you take the principles, say, you know, small and slow solutions, that may mean something very different on a, on a landscape like this, of a very um, desertified area, versus um, if you live in a place with abundant rain, okay? So instead of having one-size solutions for each ecosystem, it tries to fit itself to what's existing and then, and then slowly start to change it to something that, I mean, and like in the, in the case of the desert, something that's more abundant, something that, that um, has a, a more even flow of water through the land, these sorts of things. Um, but it's, it's not just like, well, you know, permaculturists do this technique, and, and so you're going to do it here, there, everywhere. Every, every system is going to be the same. You're not even going to use the same plants in every place, of course, because they're going to, you want to have plants that are better suited, and, and animals as well, if you're putting animals in the land, that are better suited to the, the climate that you find yourself in, rather than trying to force things to grow and, and, and um, animals to thr thrive in a place where they, they naturally are going to have a struggle. You're just working against yourself at that point. That's a waste of energy and resources. When you look at a whole system, there are two things very undesirable. One is work and the other one is pollution. Pollution is a product of work. Work is a result of not supplying every component of your system with its needs. Let's put that in way. If you didn't put a tank on your chicken house, you've got to carry water to the chicken. So you incur work. Now, if you don't collect the eggs... So this is part of what permaculture is trying to do away with, is these, these unnecessary tasks. Instead of saying, well, I want chickens, let's put the chicken house over here because, well, it's, it's flat and it's cleared already. Say, well, okay, how, how often am I going to need to visit that chicken house? That, that's, that's consideration number one. Because the more you need to visit it, the more trips back and forth from your house you're going to need to take in a day. And if that's, I know, 10 feet away, no big deal. If that's uh, 100 yards away, that could be a, a big difficulty and, and you're going to end up resenting the, the system that you've put in and it's going to take a lot of extra energy and effort to try and, and make it work. Um, he's talking about hauling water. What if you have to haul water out that far rather than have, like he says, put the, the water storage right in the location where it needs to be used? These are the sorts of things that, that permaculture design tries to think about and, and come up with creative solutions for. From the chicken house, that's pollution. So pollution 
is an unused resource. And then that comes in with that principle of David Holmgren's produce no waste. The idea is that every byproduct of one thing gets fed into another. So if you have uh, cows, their manure, then instead of being a waste product, like it would be in a high density feedlot where they're just standing in their own shit. I mean, that's, that's the only word for it. Um, instead of that sort of a situation where then it becomes a problem or it becomes a pollutant, you, you have a system where uh, that, that manure gets used on the land and ideally where it drops, you know? So you put them through a system in a way where whatever they're, they're defecating onto benefits from the, that extra nutrients, you know? And, um, and you, can, you can add even more systems to that. You can do what uh, the Polyface Farm was famous for, for doing, where after you've run, um, after you've moved your, your cows to a new pasture, at a certain number of days, when you know that the, the, you know, the, the maggots from the flies that have found the manure are going to start coming up, they're going to start hatching out of the eggs, then you run chickens through there. And the chickens will scratch at the, the cow patties. They'll, they'll have a source of food in those, those uh, maggots. And they'll also distribute that, that manure more evenly across the ground. That's called stacking functions. That's, that's doing the least amount of, of effort for the greatest reward. And also, you have each element of a system um, providing multiple outputs. You get multiple uh, uses and benefits from it. And each element uh, um, is, uh, is supported by a bunch, or each function is supported by a bunch of different elements. Okay. So not only do the, the chickens benefit from the cows going through, but they also help distribute the cow's waste more evenly. So, so the, the, the benefits stack up on top of each other. Um, it didn't go somewhere where it would be used. It was actually the whole way we related to nature. And so human settlement, the design of houses, the way we organise everything in society was a part of that. It comes from two Latin roots, permanence, to persist indefinitely, and culture, the practices that support human occupation, Put those together, it's a persistent system that supports human existence. We eat food, we grow a garden, and we grow the food in the garden and bring those things back together. Rather than the industrial system, which stretches everything out in these long supply chains. Another thing which is also extraordinarily intriguing, when you design well, nature takes hold of what you've done and does it better. And that ties again with that principle of small and slow solutions. You start out small, uh, bringing together things that will then replicate themselves and, and, and put themselves out onto the land. And as he says, nature takes over. Um, and then again, you're doing the least amount of effort for the maximum return on your investment. Um, assuming it's all stuff that you like. I mean, hopefully you're putting stuff you like out onto the land. Um, but yeah, this, this is the idea behind permaculture to 
do less and less work as things mature and, and start taking over as a natural ecosystem would. Start keeping itself in check and in balance as a natural ecosystem would. All you gotta do is watch the system and guard it slightly. So permaculture is really a design system for both sustainable land use and sustainable living. It's quite the simplest thing to say that an attempt to build a good place to live. That's another in that series from the permaculture documentary. Um, those are the two main videos they've put out so far though. So I'm not sure where their project's at, but I wish them well. It's, it's good stuff so far. So now we're going to take a, a little bit more in-depth look at, at who Bill Mollison was as a person. Bill Mollison. Bill Mollison talked about permaculture as being permanent agriculture and permanent culture. So really it's a celebration of cultures around the world, which he studied and witnessed marvelous and amazing agricultural systems as an integrated whole. About 25 years, Bill was in the field observing ancient cultures, the Maya, the Inca, the Aborigines, and so on. And he took the wisdom of each, and he provided a template that all of us could benefit from. I studied under Bill Mollison, the founder of the system. So this is Jeff Lawton. He is uh, considered one of the premier permaculture designers as well as educators of today. Um, he, as he said, he studied under Bill Mollison himself and Bill kind of, you know, said, Jeff is going to be the guy that, that takes over after me putting permaculture out into the world. Um, David Holmgren, David Holmgren, who is also still alive and active in permaculture has done quite a lot as well, but, but kind of Jeff's the guy that, that, that tends to do these big international classes of, of permaculture design and these big demonstration projects, especially in very arid and hard to produce in places. Bill was born in Tasmania, in, in a, quite a, a rural coastal village. Throughout his life, Bill did many different things and worked a number of professions. He worked as a wildland surveyor, he was a biologist, and also a university teacher. And he saw the forest come down, he, he saw the sea starting to be depleted. He saw the resources being lost right way back in the 1970s and he started to get concerned so he realizes that we need to come up with a system that would give us the supplies we need but also give us the solutions that are absolutely essential for permanent sustainable activity for humans to become the most beneficial element on earth, rather than the most damaging system on earth. Bill Mollison conceived the concept of... Oops. ...of permaculture as a design science, and a subject that can be taught with clever little strategies of how it's extended worldwide, and how 
our, our students, once they've taken the course, can teach the course. And, and the word permaculture is owned by the students of the design certificate course, so it's more or less unstoppable. It's a wild system that can't be controlled because it's not centralised. Bill and I worked together teaching his last few courses. So if you notice, the way that he's trying to set up permaculture as a design science and, 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 and set of theories is the same way that, that most people, or that, that he would want people to set up a permaculture operation where you set the, the important stuff up first and then you just kind of let it go as, as it naturally does. And it just self-replicates and moves across the, the world in this case, um, just kind of naturally. And um, that was a great honor to work with Bill um, as my teacher and then in the end of his career as his, as his co-teacher. And um, we're good mates. Um, we're good mates. We always have been, we always will be. In Australia, there's a man named Bill Mollison who got so pissed off at environmental destruction that he developed a way to design sustainable systems in every inhabited region on Earth. Where's the CC nut on this? There we go. What Sorry was or is your motivation for practicing permaculture? Uh, well, it's very simple. Uh, it's anger and actually fury. fury I had no other motivation. Fury about? Uh, the senseless destruction. Uh, that destruction, not distraction. CC's not great on this one. Visiting on the earth and, and the way people in poverty and hunger are treated. Uh, the monetary system and its ignorance and uh, that was ignorance not tigner ingent man apologize for these closed captions they're not great um so already we have baked into the, the permaculture system an, an idea the beginnings of of class consciousness and um wanting everyone to do better and, and anger at the, the, mon the monetary system that, that, that keeps people down uh, systematically. So I think this is a really good fit for any sort of leftist political idea. Just generally, the fact that we could do so much better and we don't. We just ignore what's happening. And so I'm very angry. I gave a lecture in Bristol to some 700 Englishmen and women. And I just come up from Botswana, and Botswana is is or was a British protectorate called Bechuana Land until in '67 it got us independence. And the English side. It's supposed to be go back to our land, not Ireland. And all sorts of deals with it. It, it was going to buy it buys a quarter of a million. Buy not buys. I'm I'm just about to turn off these closed captions because they're pretty bad. Beef. Carcasses a year off Botswana. Carcasses, not Congress. And Botswana has this nice 20 year drought cycle. Drought, 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 drought. And it's had it forever. Uh, we traced it back in you know, a 16 cycle. So, okay, and these, this is the excessive rain years. 
quarter million cattle. They, they run about a million and a half cattle. Selling off a quarter of a million here is good business. But down here, they have a job to have that quarter of a million and they're not in very good nick. So England signed this contract and so did Botswana. Everybody's rubbing their Botswana, hands. Botswana, not Botswana. And England built the abattoirs at Francistown, a couple of other places. Abattoirs. And, and washed the cattle down so thoroughly that they used 80% of all the water available in Botswana. Yeah. And the other thing they did is, is really horrifying. They put... Little Botswana sits here somewhere. Botswana, not Botswana. This is the Kalahari. And it's huge migrations of game backwards and game. forwards uh, from the uh, high rainfall into Kalahari and out again. And somebody in England, I, I'd like to find this monster, track him down and have him hung publicly. He, uh, have him hung publicly. He said, we can't let these wild animals range through the farms where we're buying cattle. They might carry some infectious disease. Oh, you hear, this, you hear this a lot today, especially in places like around Yellowstone National Park, where they're concerned, so concerned that the bison may ha carry disease that the, the cattle can pick up. I mean, let alone that it, it doesn't actually happen, but, you know, can't have these wild animals roaming around where they roam, according to the current management system. Our cattle will catch. Oh, just, just one more note. Um, I think I'm going to wrap up for the night in just under 15 minutes here. Uh, I have to work in the morning, so uh, yeah, it's getting to be about time for me to, to get going. Um, so now's a good time to get in any questions that you may have about all the things we've covered tonight. This is, like, is going to be a long playlist. I'll, I'll probably do this over several Sundays at, at this rate. Um, so let's just be 101, then we'll do 102 next week and, and continue on. And we'll, and, and, and this is the way that the sequence of videos goes. They get progressively more in depth and, uh, you know, get into the heart of, of what permaculture is all about. So I think that'll, that'll work out fine. Cattle that never have done so. Cattle. But he supposes they might have. What we must do. I don't know if it even does me any, does you guys any good if, if you're watching the closed captionings. Because if you really need them, you're not going to hear my corrections. Um, well, I suppose you would if, if you have Twitch closed captioning turned on. So, may, so, yeah, I suppose that would still be good. But, ugh, bad, bad closed captioning. Is build fences across Botswana that totally prevent migration of wild animals. Bang, bang, bang. The cordon fences. Which is disastrous to wildlife that, that needs to... I mean, wildlife doesn't just migrate on a whim. It's because it needs to, to survive. It may, it may be going from breeding grounds to uh, grazing grounds or hunting grounds. Um, it may be having to move with, with the seasons to, to avoid heat or cold or whatever it may be. You can't just put up fences and say, mm, you know, solved on our end because our, our particular cattle can, can keep surviving. That's, 
that's that's putting everything uh putting profit of everything before even the, the functioning of of the natural of the ecosystem as it naturally would the first ones they closed uh 60 or 80 thousand gnu piled up against it and died gnu not canoe following uh and the zebras these animals can't jump most long long-range migrating animals are not jumpers most long-range not post they can run but they don't jump and so they didn't jump the fences they just piled up against them and died that just sounds horrific just imagine tons of migrating animals just piling up against your fences i mean it, it obviously solved problem that they or the so-called problem that they were looking at one, one of mollison's uh, most famous quotes is is the problem is the solution so usually what that means is to to reframe things so instead of saying like say you have a particular uh pest uh like a like a slug attacking your tomato plants you don't have a slug problem you have a lack of ducks problem because if you had ducks they would pick up all those slugs for you and, uh, you know, it would give them something to eat. It would give you more healthy tomatoes. And the problem would be solved. Um, so, so in this case, they didn't have a migratory animal problem. They had... Hmm. What I would say is they, they probably had a, a agricultural production pro- pro- problem. So rather than, than using animals that were suited to the land that, that wouldn't have even any uh, perceived problems interacting with local wildlife, they try to force their, their, their own productions that they, that they were used to on there. And it created all these, these, these problems that he's talking about right now. Um, and what happens if, if the... the largest um like the like the megaphone die that's gonna that's gonna have huge repercussions throughout the ecosystem you're gonna have all kinds of other problems that are coming in perhaps they ate down a particular weed that that now is gonna come and invade your agricultural spaces that your cattle don't like um but the 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 zebras or the gnu as he calls them uh love would love um perhaps their their migration uh coincides with uh, the the seeding of, of various species and they, and they rely on on those all those hoof prints to to push their seeds into the soil so now you have less trees that are are germinating per year um can have all kinds of shocks just just by removing big keystone species from, from the equation. And, and the same with um, the little uh, Thompson gazelle and all, all the other animals. Now, following these herds were lions, lots of lions, uh, hundreds, probably thousands of lions. So mm. for a few days, they had a big party on the fences eating, the, but they don't eat really rotten meat. 
and after that they were very hungry and for the first time in the history of the Kalahari they turned on people. Uh, so you had hungry lions chasing and eating people. And, and, ah, and see here we have the repercussions and the unintended consequences of trying to solve things in, in, in a way that disrupts entire ecosystems. Lions now, uh, because their, their prey has been severely diminished by these fences, are coming in and eating people. Because you were scared that wild animals may or may not give a disease to your cattle. Like this is all just based off of, of, of random conjecture and, and fear, not even any scientific backing to those claims. Just, well, it's wild animals. They, they might give my animals disease. And now you have people being eaten by lions. That's, that's, that's the direct consequence of that. Um, we shouldn't be looking to control entire ecosystems. That's never going to go well. It's never going to go well. We should be looking to be co-creators of ecosystems. It's, it's only natural for you, your operation, whatever sort of agricultural operation you have, to interact with the surrounding ecosystems that it, it is still a part of. It may be a very disrupted part of, but it is still a part of it. Um, so rather than trying to hold back all of nature, which is what you're doing with, with fences as, as the ones he's describing, why not instead try to work with it? That's a, that's a big principle from Permaculture Designer's Manual. Work with nature, not against it. Look for solutions that, that benefit not only you and what you're trying to do, but the, the wildlife that, that you didn't decide should or should not be there. Almost done for the night here. We'll wrap Stalking it up soon. And, and, uh, hunting, we'll get to a good people. stopping place here in the video. And uh, a few of my friends like Husa and Farozzi, who are Bushmen, and, and many of the Bushmen. You, you can probably guess those were not their real names, but, but good, good try, closed captioning. That I took for classes, said it was hell. The lions had never attacked them. They could walk past their noses and they talked to them politely every day. And then suddenly the lions were eating them and coming and getting them at night. And Husa was nine and Harazzi was 11, and they ran for it. So as, I, as I'm hearing, it's Huso and Harazzi. And every night they spent in thorn trees. Not very comfortable, because 11s could still get them up there. But they got out of the leopards, Kalahari not, not and survived. But none of their bands survived. None of their bands survived. All 30 or 40 of their fellow tribesmen and women died. Aunt Ida? No, lions ate them is what that <laughs> phrase was. Some, sometimes YouTube is, closed captioning is just, you know, whatever. Just, oh, Aunt Ida, what? He they really does not like his, his, his thick Australian accent for some reason. Uh, it's very difficult to understand. I mean, I, maybe I'm just used to him talking, but I don't find it in any more difficult than, say, a, a, a strong southern accent from the U.S. Very difficult. <laughs> so this guy's sitting back in Europe, probably in England, sharpening his pencil. His bloody uh, cordon fences are in place. He's killed out 
thousands of tons of game and he's killed out uh, a lot of people, hundreds of people in the central Kalahari. And you can see the bones till today, it's just a mess. I tell you, fury drives me. Fury will continue to drive me. And that's the sort of thing that makes me totally furious. Oh, we've got quite a, quite a bit more of this yeah. lecture. Are the fences down now? No. Yeah. So, England takes their quarter of a million cattle every year. We'll just end at the end of this particular anecdote. Now think about that. Do you think England has a shortage of cattle? Do you think Europe has a shortage of cattle? No, it has a beef mountain, doesn't it? It can't get rid of its bloody beef. So what do you think happens to the Botswana beef when washed down with 80% of the water in Botswana, it arrives in England? No, you surely could use for something dogs. And if you look on the, on TV, you've got some bloody tin of beef or something, and you've got some little fox terrier or some revolting little dog. He's there wagging his tongue, got his tongue out. You know, real chunky beef. So he gets a lot of TV time, that dog, and he gets a lot of... That was dog, not dom. Beef. Back in Botswana, nobody can any longer afford meat. Nobody. Even at the wholesale price of really fresh washed beef. The kids are dying. Little swollen bellies, Pashaikor, and uh, they are dying. Uh, this is called. Uh, what's it called? Rational. Yeah, no, it's it unfortunately not called genocide. But I get up in Bristol and I'm calling it genocide. And I said, I've got a better idea for you guys. And somebody, nobody said, what is it? Because they didn't want to know. I said, what you do is, you go to Botswana and put in a mercy killing station for children there and you can the kids because it's much better for them to be shot than die slowly of starvation, and your dogs... Slowly of starvation was the words. ...still get fed. So he's obviously being facetious, but he's, he's trying to drive home the point that you're murdering them, these children, one way or another, either by your policy or, as he's saying, in a, in a, in a right outright. Or you go on as you are, go right ahead and kill a kid every day. Keep your dogs. So they went right ahead and kept their bloody dogs. And I don't give a frig about kids dying in Botswana or anything else dying in Botswana. Just so long as they got the Humane Society for Dogs. For dogs. This is how you get furious, absolutely furious. Um, hmm.
So because that's what's happening in agriculture, that's what's happening in politics, that's what's happening. You're not going to stop it. The dog gets too much television. The child gets no television. You don't get a kid getting any television and you don't get a kid getting any beef either. And, and you don't get a kid getting any beef any, any further. That was what he said. I got a little uh, poster I didn't bring any with me. It says, save whales. Eat a dog every day. Eat a dog every day. Yeah, it's a, it's a dark joke. <laughs> That'll do. You can say, save kids. Eat a dog a day. Save Botswana. Eat an English. Botswana, not Brushwana. Which one occasionally. Have you ever had 700 angry Englishmen trying to get on stage with you? Um, angry, not Anglian. They're quite scary when they do their blocks. But certainly you won't part them from their dogs and you won't part the dogs from the meat. I don't know why I told you all this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Agricultural policy has some very uh, obscene results if you follow the thing through. Mollusk. So I manage a, a large permaculture group on, on Facebook. Um, I'm one of the admins in the, the largest permaculture group. Um, come check us out. And constantly, anytime that there's anything posted that's the, the least bit uh, political, quote-unquote. People come in and say, permaculture is not political. Why are you being so political? Oh, you leftist scum. All these, all these things. <coughs> Excuse me. They obviously haven't seen this, this lecture by, by Bill, and, and this is hardly the only time that he's mentioned this sort of thing. Agriculture affects politics. Agriculture affects people's lives. It can end people's lives. In, in, the, in this extreme case here, it ended a lot of people's lives. And it, it, I don't know if those fences are still up. I don't know when this video's from because it's an excerpt from another video. Uh, but but, but the, these, these dumb solutions to agricultural pro, uh, quote-unquote problems where people are just trying to impose solutions from the outside that have no business um, being implemented in the, in the space that they are, they can have detrimental, life-altering, life-ending results for, for the local people as well as the local ecology. It would have been tragic enough if it was just the migratory animals that suffered from this. But this ended people's lives. Um, so tell me permaculture is not political. <laughs> Tell me that proposing solutions that are more humane, that, that everyone can win from, that can produce more abundant ecosystems, tell me that's not political. I, I have a hard time going along with that premise. It's kind of a somber note to end on tonight, but uh, very important to keep in mind. Permaculture is political, and, and I don't see it fitting in well with, with any sort of ideology that, that doesn't care about people 
or the earth, uh, because those are kind of right there in the ethics. Um, so if you think that you, you're good enough just providing for you and yours, well, I think you've missed the, the heart of what permaculture ethics are about, for sure. Um, but yeah, with, with that, we'll, we'll wrap up for the night. Um, again, if anyone has any questions, now's the time. Otherwise, uh, I will be doing my theory stream again on this upcoming Friday at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. I don't know who my guest will be yet. It could be you. If you're listening to this and you want to be a guest uh, and go through the Conquest of Bread chapter 15, we're almost to the end of the book. We only got uh, 15 through 18 to go, I believe. Oh, is it? Yeah, I think it's 18 uh, chapters in total. And then we'll be done with the book and on to, to the, the next theory book. So if you want to be part of the Conquest of Bread discussion live, uh, shoot me a message wherever you are finding this. Um, I suppose it'll be a little harder if you're on the podcast to, to send me a message, but check out my, my YouTube channel. Uh, I'm going to put up links to all that presently. So you just go to linktr.ee slash bread underscore theory. You can also message my page on Facebook. It's bread underscore theory there. Uh, you can find me on, on Twitter, also bread underscore theory message me in that place. You can uh, send me a whisper message on Twitch. However you feel like it, I'll, I'll get to it one way or another. I, I check those often enough that, that I should get to it in time. So if you're interested in, in giving your opinion as we go through the audiobook of chapter 15 of The Conquest of Bread by Peter Kropotkin, let me know. Hit me up. Um, and other than that, I think we're going to be done for the evening. So have a great night, uh, Lectem, friends. <laughs>